Well, good morning again. Um, it's been about a year since I spoke. Uh, Timothy was gone last fall, and he's gone this fall. So here, here I am again, um, speaking on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you were here the last few years, of, as I filled in, I spoke on Proverbs, and I've been working my way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I've been ruminating on this text for a year. God's word is wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I was telling Ed, I'm, I'm sad to let it go. But uh, so hopefully this morning you'll, um, you'll be encouraged. Um, forgive me, I'll try to make, not make this about me. So let's pray one more time. Lord, um, I, I just thank you. I, I have prepared my words. Um, and Lord, I, I just pray that in all that I say this morning, even though there's prepared words, I pray that you would superintend what I say. Um, and where I might ad lib, I pray for sure that your spirit would be speaking through me, that your people might be comforted, and that any here this morning who are not your people would hear the warning that you give us and heed the warning. Help us now as we, as we listen to your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so this morning, we're going to continue on our journey through Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're moving into a new section, um, getting on a different road, if you will. At each of these junctures, and there will be several throughout the rest of the book, it's natural then for us to look to the destination, to see where Solomon is leading us and how we are going to get there. So from now on until the end of the book, Solomon will, for the most part, present us with selections of Proverbs. I never really recognized that about the book of Ecclesiastes. I thought the book of Proverbs was for that. But nope, he does it right here in the book of Ecclesiastes as well. Um, You could call them different roads, all leading to the ultimate destination, which he sums up at the end of the book in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it, I hope you have, in order to enter the path or the road to arrive at the destination, Pilgrim first needed his burden lifted. That burden, his sin, was removed through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. At this point, he permanently left the city of destruction and entered the path that would unquestionably lead him to the ultimate destination. Sometimes Pilgrim would get off the path and his way would get difficult, but he would always be goaded or brought back to the path of righteousness. Along the way, Pilgrim met others, some of them on the path by faith and others entering and exiting the path, but really going nowhere, never reaching the destination always returning to the city of destruction, and as Ecclesiastes would say, a vain life. As Solomon instructs us with these various Proverbs, it is useful to know what they are and what they are not. Solomon describes them this way at the end of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 11. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So from this description, we can see that these proverbs are delightful. They are truth that lead to good, In other words, living a life according to the Proverbs, and I will call that being on the path, is always good. But they are also goads. He says they're goads. And if you remember what goads are, that's the cattle prod that sort of pokes you. So they are also goads given by the one shepherd who is prodding us who believe, sometimes painfully, to stay or to get back on the path of faith. For the believer, these proverbs are always good, 
because they are always leading us in the right direction towards a faithful life with God to the ultimate destination of perfectly fearing him and keeping his commandments. We're not there yet, but he's going to get us there. However, for the unbeliever, these Proverbs and any vain attempt to live life consistent with them, getting on the path through your own strength, while better than not, and you'll hear that word better a few times this morning, cannot save. Salvation must always begin by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who was buried, and who was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So as we read uh, any Proverbs in Scripture, we must understand that they are not commandments. Proverbs are not commandments. They are not moral laws like the Ten Commandments. They are not thou shalts. In the end, if a person could live a life completely consistent with all the Proverbs, something you can't do with God's commandments, it would still be a vain life because you are separated from God. You are alone still saddled with your burden of sin, always returning to the city of destruction and ultimately going nowhere. So, to help a little bit, and I wasn't going to include this, but I'm going to include it because I heard this message by R.C. Sproul uh, probably a year ago. He was speaking on the, the wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, and he was given sort of an overview of them, and he talked about Proverbs. And I think this might help you get what I'm saying here because it helped me when I heard him say it. Um, Proverbs are not commands, right? If they were, how would you follow this commandment? This is from the book of Proverbs, two verses right next to each other. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Then it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. How how do I do that? Which Which command am I to follow? It's not a commandment. Proverbs are not commandments. They are wisdom. He's given a, sometimes you need to answer a fool according to his folly. And sometimes you need to say, I'm not talking to the fool. Right? So you need wisdom. That's what Proverbs are. They're wisdom. And this is, they draw that out of us. They help us to see it. Some people want to live by the Proverbs because then they're good. That's not, that's not how it works. We're only good because Christ died for us. So anyways, I hope that helps. I wasn't going to include that, but I thought I would. Um, So again, before we begin this morning, since many of you probably forgot what I said, or maybe you weren't here when I said it over the last several years, I'm going to give a brief overview to give us um, the context in which I'm speaking today. So we're going to look at Proverbs and the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes. And I say, if we don't get this foundation, then the rest of this book will probably be at best confusing and it and at worst, um, probably discouraging. Because there's some things you can draw from this book. If you didn't understand it, you, you would be like, uh-oh, this is not good. Um, you would be depressed, perhaps. So here's the big picture. The only way to avoid a vain life is to be in a right relationship with God. I believe that's what the trilogy of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon is telling us. The only way to avoid a vain life is to be in a right relationship with God. And so for those here this morning who are not, let today's message be a warning of your desperate need for God's comfort through a right relationship with him. For those here this morning who are, let this message comfort you because your sins have been removed. That's it. First, a brief summary of the book of Proverbs, which asks this overarching question, if you remember, who who are you going to be in relationship with? Woman wisdom or woman folly? Are you going to be in a life-giving covenant relationship with woman wisdom, the excellent wife? Or are you going to be in a death-giving, adulterous relationship with woman folly? Life apart from God. That was, for me, the book of Proverbs in a nutshell. Next, we come to Ecclesiastes, and here is a simple aid for understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. 
and not everybody agrees with this. There's lots of opinions about Ecclesiastes, but I believe this is the right one, so I hope it is. Solomon is juxtaposing, that's putting side by side, the vanity of life under the sun, on earth, and apart from God, a faithless life, with the beautiful and meaningful life of faith we can have in relationship with him, both now, under the sun, and forever. That's the big picture in Ecclesiastes to me. So he started that in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And Solomon describes life with woman folly. That's what he does. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that's life with woman, with woman folly. All of life, he's essentially saying, is a circle. And apart from God, we are going nowhere. In fact, once we are dead, we will be quickly forgotten. A vain and meaningless life, one with no hope. In chapter 2, one logical human response to the under the sun or earthly reality of vanity is to seek all the pleasure, or might I say comfort, we can before we die. Right? Go, go for it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Solomon, with all of his worldly wisdom and wealth, demonstrated that this too is vanity. And there was nothing to be, as he said, gained under the sun. He concluded the wise dies just like the fool and that he hated life and gave his heart up to despair. He sounds like a person with no hope. This then leads to the end of chapter 2, where we have a revelation that changes everything. Um, I believe the key verse in this book, some would say the first verse I mentioned from chapter 12 is the key verse. You know, fear God and keep his commandments. But for me, this is the key verse because it's what made me want to study the book of Ecclesiastes. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 25, apart from him, who can eat or who can have joy? This is the realization that everything good comes from the hand of God And that everything from the hand of God is good for those in relationship with him. The realization that the unrepentant sinner who is apart from God is doomed to vanity. The realization to the faithful believer that God is our source of true wisdom and knowledge and joy. Or might I say comfort and hope. And then chapter 3. Where this God who is the source of true wisdom and knowledge and joy, gives us assurance because he is sovereign over everything. Past, present, future, all of time. Our God is all-powerful. He has no limits. Remember, I had nuclear explosions, and we talked about Einstein. Those were all things to get us even to get a, a glimpse of the power of God. He, he far exceeds anything we could imagine. Um, and, and it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, right, he, he is sovereign over all time. What does it say? It doesn't say he will, but it says he has. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That's the God, the sovereign God that we can know. Admittedly, and, and I think we talked some about this maybe in Sunday school a little bit, God's sovereignty is beyond our comprehension and often a stumbling block for those who are not in relationship with him. But those of, for those of us who are, God's sovereignty is always a great comfort. It's always a great comfort. Chapter 3 continues regarding this sovereign God with these words. For God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And so this life is ultimately a test. Recall from Ecclesiastes 3.18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. However, it is not a test that we can pass or fail. We have already failed. Rather, life is is a test to show us our character, our quality, who we are, Something like a personality test. If you've ever taken a personality test, you don't pass or fail. It just tells you about who you are. 
And this is the test that's before us. And the answer is, for everyone, apart from God, Ecclesiastes 3.19. Here's who we are. We are beasts who will die just like the animals. That's who we are. We failed. But, and here's the big but, unlike the beast, God has put eternity into all of our hearts, leading everyone to ponder Ecclesiastes 3.22. Who can bring man to see what will be after him? Everybody thinks about that. The obvious answer to this question, only God can. Thus pointing everyone, without excuse, to faith in God as our only possible comfort and hope. So that's the summary. Now we're ready for chapter 4, verse 1. Ecclesiastes 4.1 says, Again, I saw all the, oppressed that are done, all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and they had no one to comfort them. Now, we naturally assume the oppressed are those who have injustice done to them, and the oppressors are those performing the injustice, and that these are two distinct groups. And in earthly situational sense, that's true. We even may assume the oppressed are the righteous ones, and the oppressors are the unrighteous ones. In a biblical sense, this is definitely not true. We all know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So interestingly, if you haven't picked up on it yet, uh, this language of oppressed and oppressor, it should sound familiar, as it is the basic tenet of the current popular idea of critical race theory. You've heard it, I suspect. According to the modern thought, we know who the oppressed and the oppressors are. The oppressed are the poor and the needy, and the oppressors are the rich and the powerful. By a logical extension of this, God owns everything, so he's rich, and God is all-powerful, so he's the worst oppressor of them all. That's what the world would say. You see the lie. This is always the mode of Satan, right, to twist the Scripture. He takes Scripture and uses it, and he's twisting real hard these days. Actually, what Solomon is saying in one is that the oppressed and the oppressors are in the same boat. They both have no one to comfort them. If you read verse 1 quickly, you'll miss that. I did. I've read, read it many times. I missed it. We naturally see the oppressed as needing comfort, but our brains filter out the oppressor's need for comfort because we assume they already have it or they don't deserve it. After all, they have power. It is an odd statement. Why does an oppressor need comfort like the oppressed, and what kind of comfort do they need? What does it mean to comfort someone? Simply from definition, to comfort is to give someone strength and hope. We will see this idea of giving strength and hope, comfort, is the key to this whole chapter and leads us desperately into chapter 5, which is where we are graciously shown the source of true and lasting comfort. Jesus told us to love our neighbors because it is our inclination not to. If it came naturally to us, he would not have needed to say it. For example, I don't need to tell most people, eat and drink and sleep, right? You just do it. Jesus told us to love God. If this came naturally to us, he would not have needed to say it. Now, unless you are mentally ill, no one has to tell you to love comfort. Our problem is we will, in our fallen natures, always seek comfort for ourselves. And sadly, and ultimately, by ourselves. We always act 
in our own interest and for our own perceived comfort. It's, it's our nature. Uh, Paul and I have a joke in the house. We say to each other, everybody does what they want to do. Everybody does what they want to do. If we are honest with ourselves, we will admit that apart from God, everything we do is motivated by our innate sinfulness to establish our own comfort. Even the so-called good things we do. The Bible says our most righteous acts are filthy rags before a holy God. So I believe the point of chapter 4 is to conclusively demonstrate our need for God's comfort. In conjunction with the futility of the hedonistic pleasures he explored in chapter 2, Solomon now shows us the futility of finding comfort under the sun and apart from God by not only toiling for riches and power, but also through the pursuit of human companionship. In the endeavor, he demonstrates our need for much more than human companionship, just as he has already shown us that pleasure, the good things in life, always leave us wanting. Based on his statement that neither the oppressed nor the oppressor has anyone to comfort them, he comes to some pretty depressing conclusions. This is where I talk about, you can read this book and you could be like, man, what's going on? Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 2 and 3. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. That would be a bad place to live if that's what you, your world was. He is saying here, we are all better off dead, or better yet, to have never been born. Sadly and naturally, our present godless culture seems to agree, right? We have an increasing rate of suicide, a tendency towards euthanasia, and, as you all know, we celebrate the murder of unborn children. These are all great evils. And Solomon is not proposing them as a valid solution to our vain lives. That would be unbiblical. He is rather showing us the, the preposterous, the preposterous, to point us to the same, to point all people to God as their only source of comfort. So, after making these outrageous statements, he uses something called better than Proverbs to further make his point. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4 and 5. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So he's putting before us two people. Solomon shows us the lonely laborer, driven by envy, perhaps using our common phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. And we have his opposite, the lonely fool, who folds his hands and essentially cannibalizes himself. Each has, described, sorry, each has decided the best course of action for their lives, as we all do, their path to their own perceived comfort. Both are wrong. And Solomon is goading us not to be either of these men. Better, he says, in this life is to have balance, to both work hard and to rest as appropriate. Ecclesiastes 4.6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. So, We could make a sermon on this, couldn't we? This is wise and right teaching, but it's not the point of this chapter to just teach us to have balance in our lives. It's just better than the extremes of the first two alternatives. Surely if you are consumed with either laziness or toil driven by greed, you are not on the road to fearing God and keeping his commandments. But even if you live the better life of balance, 
you will still die and will be eternally alone without God. Continuing, Solomon probes deeper into the man who toils hard because of envy and greed, but who is alone. And it's Ecclesiastes 4, 7, and 8. And I, I, I'm guessing, but maybe he probes deeper into this guy because that's probably most of us. I know there's lazy people in the world, but most of us are greedy and we want stuff. That's who we are. So he says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. So that's why he says the word again. He's looking back at that, that person. One person who has no other, he's alone, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Solomon realizes, realizes this miserable reality and concludes in verse 9 of chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Maybe not all the wages for just the one, but with good shared wages comes additional benefits or comfort. Right? People go into business together. Right? Why do they do that? Well, they can share the, the worries. They can share the, the financial burdens. They can share the work. Um, it's, it's good. It's a good thing um, to be with other people. In Ecclesiastes 4, 10 through 12, he gives some examples of the results of those benefits. For if they fall, one will lift his fellow. So it's good not to be alone. Someone might help you get back up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. This isn't talking about a man and woman. This is talking about, as I read, you know, back in those days, they had to travel long trips down the road, and it got cold at night. And so you would lay down, and you'd lay down next to the guy, the guy next to you because your body heat would keep you warm. If you're alone, you don't have that. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, so if you're attacked by someone, um, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. So the more companions, the better off you are from those attackers. And indeed, friends do come with benefits. It's better not to be alone on this earth. I think, think you would agree. Oh, we, I could make a sermon on this too. But that's not the point of this text. Solomon is going to point us to a greater reality. Finally, we come to the end of this chapter with the third better than proverb. And even though we have learned something about what's better under the sun through a balanced work life and shared labor through human companionship, Solomon is going to leave us essentially right where we started with the ridiculous, which was better to have never been born, leaving us to ask, where can true comfort be found? Ecclesiastes 4.13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take warning. Notice in the prior sections of this chapter, Solomon started out with the sad reality of life alone on earth, consumed with laziness or toil, and then he proceeded to the better. Two or three are better than one who is alone. In verse 13, to the end of this chapter, Solomon switches things up, and he starts off with the better. A poor young man who is alone in prison. This does not sound like better, does it? A poor young man who is alone in prison. Why is a poor young man who by definition is oppressed better than a king? Well, the proverb says, because he, unlike the old king, is still able to receive warning. What about you? Can you receive warning? Or are you so set in your own ways that you are deaf to hope? And if you can receive warning, what kind of warning do you need to receive? Is it just to have balance in your life or to share your earthly toil with others because it's better? Is that the warning that we need? It's ironic. Solomon starts out here with the oppressed, poor, and wise, and I'm going to qualify that. That's the worldly wise, 
that we talked about previously, youth, as being better off than the powerful and, by definition, oppressive king. Apparently, the youth uses his worldly wisdom to overtake the present king. He toils hard. Ecclesiastes 4, 14, and 15. He went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, and all the living who were on the earth left the old king for the new. I saw all the living who moved about under the sun go along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. This guy's definitely not alone, or is he? By the world's eyes, this poor lad achieved success by toiling his way to becoming not only a king, but a king with all the living on the earth going with him. Talk about companions. But sadly, as the next verse explains, this lad ended up just like the king before him, alone in a world full of people who will turn away to the next king. And so even with all the people, both men, whether oppressed or oppressor or somewhere in between, are still ultimately alone with no one to comfort them, left only with vanity and a striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes 4.16. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, the cycle is the same for both kings and future kings, and really for all of us. Though you have two, three, or a multitude of friends and followers, Facebook and Twitter, And though you may become rich and powerful in the end, you will be alone with no one to comfort you. You are just a poor lad on your way to becoming a foolish king, seated on the throne of your own life, no longer able to receive warning. What warning? Think about this. What warning? Well, after four chapters, we are left to ask this question. If not with worldly wisdom, if not with riches, if not with accomplishments, if not with all the pleasures this world has to offer, if not with companions and friends and a multitude of adoring followers, where can we find everlasting comfort? The answer? Chapter 5. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you come to chapter 5 and you're just sort of reading and you don't understand, you're just going to go, why is this here? I mean, it's not that it's wrong, but it's just like, it's just like plop. Right there it is. Well, it's, it's the warning that everybody needs to hear. So let me read in whole verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be Hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God, and that's the ultimate warning, is the one you must fear. Chapter 5 is the warning we must all receive. It's like the signpost that says, Danger Bridge out ahead, take this detour from your own way, because it's the only way to get safely to the destination you seek. You may think you know the way to your own comfort and happiness, but you don't. That always leads to the city of destruction. As I read chapter 5, I also realized that even though it's a warning, if you're a, a believer, it's a comfort. Um. Why is it a comfort? It starts out, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. We can approach him. 
we can approach God. A clear statement that we can approach God. There is a way to a relationship with God. The fact that this is even possible, given our sinfulness and his holiness, is an unbelievable miracle that should give us all great comfort and hope. We can approach God. Jesus said, warning, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. Have you listened to the warning? And if you have, even if this new way is bumpy, takes a little longer, and you are not sure because you don't clearly see the destination just yet, take comfort. You will stay on the path by faith because your faith is a gift from the sovereign God of the universe who is all-powerful and never fails. So heed the warning. It is clear in this text we are not to trifle with God. So don't attempt to manipulate him. Don't create a God in your own image. Don't create your own religion, picking and choosing what you will and will not believe. Don't make a vow and not keep it. And, and that, in the context of who Psalm was writing to, that was the people of Israel, they would make vows. You know, we heard of, I'm sure you've heard of Nazarite vows. There's other vows that they took. They would make a vow. They'd go to the temple and they'd say, hey, I'm going to give this goat. It's my good goat. I'm going to give it to God. And then they'd go home and they'd look at their goat and they'd go back to the temple who they called the messenger. That's the priest. And they'd say, eh, I'm not going to give the goat. Don't break your vows. Don't break your vows. Don't be a hypocrite. Um, where am I at? Yes. Simply to draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. We must come to God on his terms. True faith is really simple. There's no proverbial life you must live. Believing the gospel by faith is everything. I want to read Ecclesi- or sorry, Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 for you. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things under the sun or on earth. Do you believe this? If you do, you have heeded the warning and you will strive for a life that represents and is consistent with what you have professed. This will be your spiritual act of worship. This is your fear of God. You will fulfill your vow, and you won't delay in paying it. And your obedience to God will not be a burden you carry on the path of life, but rather a strength, a natural outflowing of your faith. You will experience comfort in pleasing him, because ultimately, it's his gift to you. As believers, we also know because we have all no doubt experienced that when we don't live a life consistent with the faith we have been given, like Pilgrim when he got off the path, we don't lose our salvation, but we do lose that sense of comfort, that peace that we have because of Christ. We as believers are compelled to confess to God who is faithful to forgive us. We are compelled to repent because God will keep us from falling. Oh, we may trip, but we will not fall because God is able to make us stand in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, blameless through Jesus Christ our Lord. To the unbelievers here this morning, to those trapped in a vain life, will you listen to the preacher's warning? In verses 3 and 7, Solomon uses these words, the word dreams, with a negative connotation. I'm going to read chapter 5, verse 3 and verse 7. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. In this context, what's a dream? Well, to me, it's simple. It's a selfish aspiration or ambition. To dream, in the sense, is to seek your own comfort driven by self-worship. Don't, don't be a foolish king on the throne of your own life with, who no longer knows how to receive warning. 
In the book of Jude, we have a similar use of the word dreams, where Jude describes dreamers. And in this case, he's specifically addressing false teachers, but, but heretics as well. Um, and in the end, we're, we all, everybody has a religion. Everybody has their own religion, one way or another, and, and is a heretic. Um, so he's addressing them. Um, let's see. Uh, who, rather than believing the word of God, relied on their dreams fueled by their own instinctive, sinful desires for pleasure and comfort. He describes the dreamers this way. I'm going to read um, Jude verses 5 through 16. Again, a long text, but I want folks to hear the warning. Now, I want, you, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, it's interesting to me, he says, Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. You don't think of it like that way, do you? Anyways, afterwards, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals or beasts, we could say, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves to the sake of of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, see they're going nowhere, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the... And here, here's a series of uns, ungodly, and that's really apart from God, right? So listen to what he says. They have committed in such an ungodly way Uh, Did I miss it? Uh, Oh, sorry. I'll go back. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly, those who are apart from God, of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. Everybody does what they want to do. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Heed the warning, don't let this be you. Here's the simple truth. God is the one you must fear. Lastly, I wasn't going to include these verses in this text, but a few weeks ago I said to myself, you know, I should read through Ecclesiastes again and just see what's in front and what's in back. And then these verses popped out at me. A lot of of commentators stop there at verse 7 because they ultimately don't know what to do with verses 8 and 9. They're very difficult verses, to say the least. As I read, translators don't know how to translate and commentators don't know how to ultimately commentate. They don't know if it should go with what's before, what's after, or is it just something that's sitting there right where it is. And, and I struggled with this because I know that I'm not capable like most of the people I'm reading the books that they write. You know, I don't have the theological training and the knowledge to do this. But... My guide to understanding this text comes from Romans 15.4, which says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And literally, at the time I was struggling with these verses, I have a family radio app, and up popped this verse, literally at the moment. And uh, my sister, which I'm so happy to say, calls those God moments. And so I had a God moment. I said, okay, you're telling me something. So in light of my understanding, and I admit I I could be wrong, 
But in light of my understanding of what I have just spoken on, that is our desperate need for God's comfort. The only source, the only possible source of comfort is God. I believe these verses naturally go with what proceeds. In fact, in my opinion, these verses beautifully bring to a close this section on comfort. The first part of chapter 5 is a warning to unbelievers to look to God alone for comfort. These next two verses are a great comfort for all who have heeded the warning. Let's read Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So where did we start? In chapter 4, verse 1, Solomon was seeing all the oppressions that are done under the sun. We end now with Solomon speaking to each one of us who see the same injustices, and who might be disheartened by them. He says, if you see, like I saw, the oppressions of the poor and a violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Other translations would say, do not be dismayed, do not be shocked, do not be disheartened, because you see these things going on in the world. The same things I saw. What is one of the biggest stumbling blocks to faith for so many? What is the main criticism of God by unbelievers? They say, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, why does he allow injustice in the world? Why does he allow injustice in my life? They say, I cannot believe in a God who allows injustice like I see and experience. We have all heard the criticism, or perhaps even struggled, honestly, ourselves with this question, since we also see so many evils under the sun. I believe Solomon is simply saying to each one of us who have approached God by faith, do not be dismayed at the injustice that you see with your own eyes, the same injustice I saw with mine, because those who commit injustice are watched from high above. A literal translation of the Hebrew text goes like this. For high up above, High up keeps watch and high ups over them. The high ups, as some interpret, is understood as a plural of majesty, referring to a king or even to God. The same king, I believe, referred to again in the next verse, verse 9. So it could read like this. For high up above, yeah, for high up above, high up keeps watch and God or the king over them. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. In other words, we are being told, do not be dismayed at this evil, unjust age, because God is watching. And not just as a disinterested observer, but as a committed king who will bring to the land um, gain. Ecclesiastes 5.9 But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, again, we have to remember that this is in the context of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel who had kings. They had King David who went to war and ultimately brought peace to the land. Solomon was a king who reigned at a time of peace. Still injustice, but peace. They weren't being attacked from all their borders. So as history progressed and the nation was oppressed, they were always looking to a king like David, who would, through power, war, restore the people and the land to peace. Right? They were always looking to their Messiah. So despite all the injustice done in this evil age, there is gain for the land. How can this be? Because the God whom we can approach is not only watching, but he is committed to cultivated fields. From our side of history, we have been blessed to see God's commitment to us. Jesus, the King, who faithfully obeyed the Father, accomplishing our gain through the cross. From the other side of history, I'm going to read from Isaiah 32, 15 through 17. 
God foreshadowed exactly how he would accomplish cultivating his fields and then described the results of um, his effort. Here it is. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful or cultivated field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness quietness, and trust. Sounds pretty comfortable to me. Jesus said from John 16, 7, where Timothy has been preaching, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What a wonderful comfort we have in Christ, who was committed to our salvation through the cross, Guaranteeing for everyone who believes everlasting comfort. So, that's the end. If you would stand with me, we're going to prepare to sing, but I want you to do one thing with me. We're going to read the answer together to the Heidelberg Catechism question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And I hope that everyone in this room can truly believe what we're going to read right now. Stand and let's read. Again, here it is. What is your only comfort in life and death? And now say with me, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And as Greg comes up, I'm going to warn you that we are going to have a little bit of Christmas this morning. Um, As I was thinking about the message and what it means, uh, this song came to mind, and it's a Christmas hymn, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, right? And it ends in the phrase, comfort and joy. So hopefully that makes sense with what I've said. We're only going to sing two verses of the hymn. As I said earlier, we don't want too much Christmas just yet. But um, let's sing that, and then we'll get ready for the Lord's Supper.